Yeah, I'll have the listeners know that this interview came together via DM on Instagram. That's right. Where all the best things come together. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, check your DMs. Magic shit can happen. Hello and welcome back to Surf Splendor. This is your host, David Scales. Today's guest is Sal Masakela. Sal is, I'm sure, a name that you know and somebody who you've almost undoubtedly seen. He is a professional broadcaster, television host, musician. He's a television producer. He came from the surf, skate, snow world, but did a brief detour into mainstream entertainment with gigs on MTV and E-Television. He's currently a correspondent for Vice Sports, and he's the voice of the Red Bull Signature Series. We get into all those details briefly in this episode, but we really kind of focus more on Sal's origin story, the decisions that he made to get him those positions and to basically just do what he does. And his origin story is honestly just a one of a kind story in the surf industry. And there were details of it that I was aware of, but also a lot of details and actually struggles, frankly, that I just completely was not aware of. So you've kind of seen the style of these interviews develop over the years. And I think that maybe I stated as much in my uh, intro in the Mark Healy episode. And the way that they've developed is that I like to begin with origin stories to give you a little bit of the history for the guest and then really just use more of my time with them to get their thoughts and insights into the current affairs of surfing. These guys are in the thick of it. If they aren't themselves A-list surfers, they're hanging out with them regularly. They have more insight into board design, um, world tour goings on, industry happenings than anybody else. So I want to talk with guys like Sal. Um, about what boards Slater's riding. You know, that's what you and I are talking about. I want to criticize or analyze the branding of Dane's new brand, Former, or specifically in this case with Sal being a professional broadcaster. Let's analyze the WSL and, and identify ways that they can improve and identify ways that they're failing, you know? So that's where we spend a lot of time in this conversation. And much like myself, Sal likes to talk. Or more accurately, he likes to have conversation. He's actually a really good listener um, in addition to being a talker. So I was really gratified by my time with him, and I'm really glad to be able to share this conversation with you. I've never interviewed a broadcaster before. Sal's actually the first. So usually these interviews are a bit more work for me. Um, As you know, they're with surfboard shapers, photographers, publishers, pro surfers, and sometimes I have a difficult time getting them to open up or the first half of the interview, they will be uh, a little more reserved. And then later in the interview, they'll finally open up. And oftentimes I have a hard time getting a linear narrative out of the interview subject. And I'll do some editing in post-production to make it more linear. Or there's actually been instances where I've scrapped the entire conversation because it was just too boring. So my conversation with Sal actually ran over two hours, and I specifically, even within that two hours, avoided certain topics 
that I knew we'd get deep into because I just wanted to be respectful of Sal's time. Uh, we could have gone four hours. We could have gone five hours. And so um, I didn't actually edit this conversation at all. This is just the raw take of it. And I think in addition to the insight that Sal provides in terms of surf commentary, the candor with which he tells his story illustrates some really important life lessons. So I wanted to make sure and leave everything in. Uh, There's a lot to absorb here and there's a lot to learn from. So I appreciate Sal being candid in this conversation. I'll have links to all of Sal's music, some of his hosting work, some of his film work, All of it will be on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Feel free to leave a comment there for Sal, and I will make sure that it gets to him. We recorded this conversation in Sal's kitchen in Venice Beach, California, yesterday on day one of the waiting period for the Quicksilver Pro, just as they were calling the event off, actually. Otherwise, we would have had it streaming during this conversation and referencing the event while we were talking. At any rate, This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with Sal Masakela. Enjoy. Before we kind of get into broadcasting and action sports and all that sort of stuff, I think it's worth just telling a little bit about your father and his lineage and how you came to be and all that sort of stuff. He's got a pretty impressive legacy. Um, tell me about your dad. Who is your dad? My dad's name is Hugh Masakella. He is a musician, composer, singer, flugelhorn player, um, activist. I would say comedian because he's the funniest, <laughs> funniest human being I know. And um, he came here from South Africa. In 1959, as a political exile fleeing the legalized institutional racism of the apartheid uh, regime. And as a young boy, as a musician, a teenager, he was doing the unthinkable and um, making music that sort of spoke out in tongue-in-cheek and sometimes in a pointed direction about the South African government, uh, as well as making music with musicians that weren't black. Oh, okay. Um, you know, in underground, sort of hidden ways with, with, with white musicians, and that was illegal. It was illegal for white people and black people to interact in any way that wasn't business mm-hmm. or um, subservient. So, in other words, if I, if I worked for you, I could hang out with you, but afterwards, like, there's no reason for us to be socially together, and we sure as hell wouldn't be hanging out in public socially. That was illegal. Let alone, you know, you had a sister who was attractive, and I hooked up with her. Right. You know, that would be the end. Yeah. Um, And so at a certain point, when they really started um, focusing and targeting people that they looked at as troublemakers or people who could engage... Um, the minds and hearts of those around them to be like, hey, this is stupid, this is wrong, we should be fighting back. Um, my dad got out. Okay. He went to London first, and then thanks to a guy named Harry Belafonte, made his way to New York to the Manhattan School of Music and um, was able to find his way through music and all these different musicians at the time, like uh, 
Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie. Those were the guys that he was hanging out with. And um, he went on to have an incredible career. Like in the 60s, mid-60s, it really took off. In 1968, he had a huge hit called Grazing in the Grass that was like 13 weeks, number one. Um, And that's when it really, you know, the mid to late 60s, it exploded for him. He was like the first black artist to play the Whiskey Go-Go here in L.A. Um, And he didn't take citizenship anywhere for about 30 years. Okay. Um, And because he believed that apartheid was going to end. And he moved back in 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah. And to, that's where to he To South Africa, now? where he now uh, lives uh, presently. Awesome. Yeah. So I grew up in an interesting way with my dad. Um, my dad and my mom split up when I was young. My mom moved from California. I was born here in L.A. And then moved back to New York. And grew up between New York um, up until I was like 14. I was in New England for a couple of years, which were horrible. Really? Um, my mom and stepdad moved up there, but I would live with my dad on the weekends in in New York when he was around. And then we moved to Carlsbad uh, when I was 16 years old. I know everybody always asks about your dad because of his um, celebrity. What about your mom? I know she, I, there's one, one sentence on Wikipedia that says she was Haitian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my mom, my mom will love you for that. Um, my mom's name is Jessie. Jessie LaPierre, and she's from Haiti, and also came here, she came here with her parents when she was around seven or eight years old. So I am a first-generation American son of immigrants, (laughs) America. You're welcome. (laughs) And uh, my mom is fantastic. My mother is a, my mother was always ahead of the curve when it came to Never believing that you sh- you should do what everyone else is doing. My mother is the person who really always researched and deep dive why she thought it was just common sense that you should always think twice about what you put in your body. So I grew up in a house where if it was advertised on television as food, it wasn't in my house. Funny. So like in the late se- in the seventies and eighties, when you went to your friends' houses and it looked like you know. Like a commercial, hungry man dinner, hungry, hungry man dinner, and all the you know all the awesome cereals um, with uh, cartoons and stuff. None of that existed. Yeah, my house was basically a a testing ground for anything organic, um, anything that would now be popular today. My mother was doing it always ten, fifteen years earlier, yeah. which was a was fun. In some ways, and also super weird and shitty as a kid when it comes to peer pressure and stuff. When yeah. you're opening up your lunchbox and you're eating like a peanut butter and honey sandwich um, on some bread that had so much grain and sprout in it that it broke when you bit it. Right. And everyone else is like, ding dong, <laughs> Twinkies and bologna and like, you know, Kraft mayonnaise. Like, what is that? Yeah. Um, well, as with so many things that your parents teach you, you come to appreciate it later. In the oh, life. so much so, man. Yeah. I'm so, so, so grateful. Yeah. My mother was right. I mean, beyond the call of right. And my mother, if you look at her now, she's in her late 60s and she looks like she's in her 40s. Really? She's never... I don't know when my mother's been to the hospital. Wow. Um, I, I Probably she couldn't tell you the last time she went to the doctor for a checkup. Hmm. Um, she's always lived basically off the grid of of and believed in prevention and taking care of yourself and not not having a good time 
but treating food more like fuel yeah. and respecting it as opposed to the fact that like we live in a society where you have this big commercial entity in, in the big food machine who the only way they, they make their profits is to convince you that this is how we eat. Totally. And, you know, when I was 19 and I moved out, I literally like gave my mom a, a, uh, the middle finger in a way. And I, I went to the store and I bought all that shit, you know, cinnamon toast crunch, you name it. I remember calling my mother and being like, I'm eating a giant bowl of cinnamon toast crunch, mom. And she was like, well, those are your choices. And I can't take that away from you. You're a grown up now, but let me know how that works out for you. Right. Exactly. And it wasn't long that after eating like repetitive carne asada burritos at 2 a.m. and eating like however I wanted to, that I found myself, I was like 230 pounds. Miserable. And miserable by the time I was in my mid to late 20s and no longer surfing at a high level. Yeah. Or snowboarding at a high level. And I didn't know how fat I was or unhealthy I looked until I started seeing myself in TV. It's like right around the same time that my television career was taken off. And I just didn't have the metabolism that was built to, to, to process that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we'd be on the road on the Tony Hawk tour and everyone would eat the same way. And I'm like, why don't my clothes fit me anymore? Yeah. And that's when I, that's, I'd say probably about maybe 16, 17 years ago is when I, Started, I, I was like, Mom, I'm sorry. Show me the way. And she's like, I've been waiting for you. Good. Um, Good, Mom. So it changed well, my ways. <laughs> it's it's tough, though, seeing yourself in the on TV or whatever and not being able to reconcile that that's actually what you look like to the outside world. And I've never been on TV, but it's like I caught an angle of myself in the mirror the other day where I was, like, looking backward and leaning, and I saw, like, fat that I had never seen before on my yeah. body. And I was New like, fat. well... Diet starts tomorrow. Yeah. Like this is this is shameful to me, you know. Yeah, and the um, older I get now, it's just a, it's a way of life. And now I find myself really trying to deep dive and figure out what works for me. Yeah, and um, yeah, especially when it comes to surfing. Well, that's the thing. When you notice your performance level getting worse or then improved by those adjustments, it makes it easier to follow the re- the regime. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing about surfing is it keeps you honest. It does. Totally. It really does. And you either like are going to be that guy who's now out on a fun board yeah, um, with your friends going, really? Really? That's what you ride now? Yep. Or, or worse, you're going to just regale yourself to only riding a longboard, even in conditions where you shouldn't be riding one. Yeah. Um, it's a sad I, day. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. You, you know? got to have one in the quiver. Yes. You can't ride it I every have, day. I have one in the quiver. Yeah. I have everything. I got a sup in the quiver. I got a longboard. All right, don't I, go too far. Dude. Yeah, listen, <laughs> I have one, but I only I only use the sup for um, actual physical training and doing laps. You will never see me riding a wave. However, I'm not going to deny the fitness of taking taking the stand up out and going from the Santa Monica Pier to the Venice Pier and back. That's yeah, a workout. Totally. Well. I follow you on Instagram. I've seen you hitting the gym, doing the CrossFit thing, and I will say you've never looked fitter. Hey, you know, thank you very much. Forty-five yeah. is better late than never. You're forty-five. I'm forty-five. Wow. Yeah. No, it's good. It's really. It, good. it feels good. That's the other thing is you know we you grow up sort of when you get to forty, you don't know. Okay, like you see what happens to other people. Mm-hmm. You feel some things have changed, and it was probably around thirty-nine. That I got the real choice of being like, okay, what do I want this to look like for the rest of my life? What right. what platform am I playing from? 
And that's when I really had to, to deep dive and be like, okay, I can't just be the casual about taking care of myself. I have to make taking care of myself a way of life or I'm not going to be able to enjoy the things that I love. And I want, I was like, I'm that's too young. Point. I feel too good and I know what my abilities are yeah. to be I, to be that person be like, oh yeah, I used to do that. Right. Maybe I can say that when I'm in my 60s, but if you look at someone like, I don't know, if, if, if you look at uh, you look at some of these guys who are, are, are passing into that in their 60s and are still charging and doing what they like. I surf with, with, with Bob Hurley all the time. Yeah. Bob Hurley is like 60-something years old. Was, the guy's out there on, under, you know, on, on a 6.3, 6.4 at cloud break, and he's turning and going on set waves. Yeah. That's the thing. Would you, would you prefer getting barreled at cloud break or eating the double-double? Like, which brings you more joy? Yeah. The, it's barreled at cloud break. Super, super so, simple. That's what it comes down to. Simple math. Yeah. Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I, I made the decision around 39. I was like, okay. I'm going to figure out how to, I'm going to do whatever I can to have the most fun at this. And you learn in real time how, to, how your body works. You mm-hmm. can't train the way you could when you were in your 30s, um, but you figure out what works. And then you go out and surf. And if, if, if it works better when I'm surfing, if, it, if I'm surfing better, if I feel better, if I have more energy, then I keep doing it. And yeah. Well, you know. I'm always apprehend, or I always check in, by the way, when I'm doing these interviews to see like if the conversation is going off the rails. And this isn't like this conversation is relevant because fitness is a part of the conversation always. Like I said, Healy's recent episode, it's like the guy can hold his breath six and a half minutes and he does this gymnastica training and all the, all these other things. Um, oh, I've been DMing with Kid Peligro. Yeah. Like when you're here, like I'm, I'm in, I want that shit. Yeah. Like, I'm putting that in my arsenal. Yeah. You know? I, I'm good friends with Healy, and he put me onto the breathing a couple of years ago. And I, I, I go to the Wim Hof seminars, and I started incorporating Wim Hof breathing from hanging out with with Laird and Gabby up at their pool. Yeah, with a bunch of freak old people who just go ham at training, and it's like, all right, cool. I can sit and learn how to hold my breath at a full exhale, not inhale, at a, up to three minutes. What's that going to do for my mindset when the the horizon goes dark? Mm-hmm. It's going to put me in a better position to be like, okay, this is going to suck, but I actually am equipped to deal with it. Yeah. So those, and I think that a lot of our listeners are sitting at a desk for most of the day and they want a lot of this, um, you know, health and wellness kind of conversation. I think it relates to everybody. Have you, with Laird and Gabby, have you done any of the like hot and cold training? And I mean, obviously Wim Hof probably yeah. as well with the cold therapy. So in the What's summer, your exposure to it? So when they come back from Kauai in another couple months, uh, you, it starts up. And one day I was I was surfing, I was surfing, surfing Little Doom. And Laird, you know, comes out of the horizon. On his, <laughs> here comes fucking Poseidon. You just Don't see me. the silhouette backlit, like oh, there he is, and you hear people grumbling. And he paddled, and he paddled up to me that day, and hey, Sal, what's up? You know, super nice. And then it's funny to see people's reactions because everyone's got their their view of, sure. of Laird. And he, he, we made some small talk, and he gave me shit about riding a small board. And then he asked me if I was training, and I said, yeah, I'm doing some stuff fitness wise. Like, do you want to like try something else? I said, yeah. He said, well. Be at my house tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Don't bring anybody. And I'm going to show you what's happening on the other side. And 
texted Gabby, got the address, went up there, and that was two years ago. Okay. And now I go two days a week. Oh, when, really? When, I, when they're home, and I'm home, Tuesdays and Thursdays are spent at the, I like to call it the Church of Humility. Um, the Church of Absolute Humility. Training, doing the hot, the ice bath, the sauna, and challenging myself, you know, running underwater, swimming underwater with the weights. Hmm. And that stuff's just, that's just life-changing. When you, when, when Laird says, you're like, okay, you're going to take these two 50-pound dumbbells, you're going to sink to the bottom of this 13-foot pool, and you're going to walk that way and back, and you're not going to come up for breath. And you've got the air, and your brain, you're going to tell your brain that it is more important for you to, to finish the task than it is to panic. And if you can get through that point, you're going to find out what you're really capable of. Hmm. So it goes from being able to walk to one side, then twice, and next thing you know, you're able to do four laps. And you're having these weird breakthroughs of what's possible. And it right. puts you through all these different types of deals that... I mean, it's you know, it doesn't take a you know a brain surgeon to figure out how that transfers to surfing. It's it's wild. Yeah, so it's a lot of um, mental kind of breakthrough and psychological training in addition to the physicality. Of yeah, it. I heard also that they built that pool with either stairs in there's it. Ste- there's steps. There's in steps it. in it. Yeah, so you, on the bottom. There's steps that go from the shallow end to the deep end Got in it. the middle of the pool. Right. So it's like a stair. Yeah, a stairwell. So you literally like. There's one thing that you do. I'm up there. Danny Fuller's really good at this one. And that's a, that's a funny thing. Like on any given day, who's who you show up and is there is like Fuller might be there, or um, Stephanie Gilmore might be there, or right. you know, or outside of surfing. Yeah, right? or like, like Mike Hollywood. Mike D is there, yeah. or Rick Rubin is there. And yeah. you're like, I'm sitting in a sauna with Rick Rubin. Like 99 problems. This is not one. Um, but you take. Those two forty-five pound weights, you descend to the to the to the bottom in the shallow end, and you have to crawl with your arms down the hillside of the pool, and then turn around and walk up the stairs with your arms. Wow! Back up to the shallow end, and then to the to the shallow side without losing breath. Wow! And that's like that's just some shit where you're like, okay, this sucks. Yeah. But you make it a meditation, and you again, you learn how to. You learn how to, to deal with the task as opposed to like how you feel isn't always a true gauge of what's going on inside your body. Totally. Just like a panic attack. Mm-hmm. Like a panic attack, and I've had them. I've, I had a period in my life where I was, had severe anxiety to the point where I'd gotten hospitalized like two or three times. Wow. And it's like, no, I'm dying. No, actually, you're not dying, but you, your brain has convinced you that you're dying because there's some shit that's going on in your life that you're not dealing with and this is the only way that your body's going to like say, hey, I need you to deal with your shit. Yeah. And when I went back to like actually looking at what was going on in my life and making changes in my life, then the panic attacks mm. stopped happening. So it's in a, on a micro scale or a different scale, a lot of time that's, that's what's happening. You're, you're, your panic isn't based on what's really happening. Sure. Your body's, or your maybe your psychology always wants to find the easiest way out. So it's going to tell you you're freaking out so you get out of this uncomfortable situation. It's the reason why our brains are probably wired to go to the shoulder. Yeah. To paddle for a wave as opposed to paddling into the belly of the beast. Yeah. Where you actually have a better chance of catching the wave of your life. Yeah. Under the ledge. Under the ledge. Yeah. Gnarly. Um... 
Real one last question on Laird and Gabby. Do you know the temperature of the sauna and the cold plunge? 225 degrees uh, is what Laird likes generally. In the sauna. 225, 230, sometimes 240. Okay. And you're doing like 20-minute runs. People are just like packed in, like skin to skin. It's real. 20 minutes at 220. Yeah. That's heavy. After you just got out of like three minutes in a... 30 degree, 34 degree, full ice bath. Got it. That's the other temperature I wanted. So I do believe in the ice or the cold therapy, but like I don't have cold enough implements at my place. Like my shower doesn't get that cold. You know what I mean? It does. It sucks. It does. Oh, that sucks because I didn't learn about the shower end of it until I did the Wim Hof um, classes. And he was like... If you do not have ice, don't worry. Make sure that when you're finished with your shower, every shower you finish, you know, do a minute yeah. worth in the cold and do some breathing. Right. And it's anti-inflammatory and all these other things. So now I don't, I can't take a shower without ending cold, but me, I have a cold shower. Me neither. How do, so, you, how do you change that? It's, I don't know. I just can't. Because <laughs> we all want, we all want a hotter shower, but maybe people well, no, want my, a colder shower. So my, mine gets super duper hot and my girlfriend's gets super duper cold. Right. And so I told her, I was like, I wish we could just swap showers because she wants the hot shower. Right. I want the cold shower. Right. But, but what I was going to say is, I don't know if I've had any other physical experience in life that had bigger return on investment for such a little investment. Yes. It's like the one minute in cold water radically changes everything for me. So because my shower doesn't get cold enough, the ocean works. Right. You know, or I have actually purchased bags of ice and done that plunge. Or if I have a friend who has a pool or whatever, I'll use that. But it's like that really snaps everything into focus for me. I'm more productive throughout the day. All of these things from this little tiny investment. So I would love to take the next step, which would be the sauna or whatever the physical training is that they're incorporating. But again, for a listener, that's the bare minimum. Take that cold shower. That is the bare minimum. You'll see immediate benefit. Yeah, you come, especially in the morning, you just focus on. You'll forget that you haven't had your coffee. Don't need it. When I tell people that, they're like, what are you even talking about? That's crazy. My girl hates being cold, hates it. She's Colombian. And she decided to like dip her toes into like what 20 seconds, 30 seconds would feel like. And she's like, damn it. I wish this didn't work so well. Really? Yeah. Okay, cool. What I try to tell people is like, they'll ask what temperature, how long, doesn't even matter. You can actually agree or disagree with this because I don't know if this is actually what Laird is preaching or Wim Hof, but like, for me, it's just a matter of activating the flight fight response yeah and as soon as you activate the flight response you got to breathe through that push through that and once you've kind of controlled where you're at then you're good to go so it doesn't matter if that takes 90 seconds or 60 seconds at 30 degrees or 50 degrees just once you calm the flight response is what you're going for which goes back to everything that we've been talking about yeah right yeah exactly It's, it's calming the flight response when you decide to Paddle into the wave instead of going to the shoulder. Right. You make that choice. Or when you're underwater, you make that choice. All these different things that we're talking about that aren't, it's not just because you're getting the alert doesn't mean it's the end of the world. And it's the same thing when you feel cold water. But so what I think is really happening is doing that to yourself in the morning in the shower 
prepares you to do it when you're paddling into that wave or when you're negotiating with your boss for a salary or whatever. Like just taking control of something early in the day like that allows you, I don't know, the wherewithal to do it later. In day, I, you know? I, I agree. I yeah. mean, neither one of us are scientists, <laughs> but we Far say this shit it. is true. But we have a podcast. <laughs> so so um, back to the timeline. You said you went to high school in Carlsbad. Am I mistaken? Or did you go with like, was it like Taylor Knox? Taylor and Knox. And 90s pro surfers? Ta- Taylor Knox. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, let's see, it, around that time was like Taylor Knox. And then bef- the, the guy who was established at the time was, uh, was Sean Madison. Oh, okay. Von Sol uh, surfboards. Yes. Yeah. Um, he was he was the ripper, and then Taylor Taylor and I were in the same grade. He was one of the first kids I met. I met him the first week, okay. and I was a I'm a kid from New York and New England. Yeah. Who's coming into? It's 1988. I'm coming into the height of the 80s. Alternative music, alternative culture, skateboarding is just starting to explode. People dressed like like a like the only time I'd seen people dressed like that were in movies, mm-hmm. you know, in like California movies. Yep. Um, I showed up to school, I remember, in like in Levi's and Timberlands and people were literally in Ugg boots and, you know, short, billabong shorts and tank tops. And that's yeah. like, you'd get sent, A, no one would know what you were wearing and B, you'd get sent home for wearing it. Really? And that's how I arrived at Carlsbad. And there was... You know, 2,000 kids in this school, and only two people looked like me. Right. One guy was a running back who, who lived in another town, but he played football at Carlsbad. Um, and, and another guy was on the football team, and that was it. So it was, it was strange just on, on... It was strange just given, like, the surroundings and palm trees and, like, a mile, from the, mile and a half from the beach and all that... And also, like, I'd grown up in New York City with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, every race, I had interacted with them um, and grew up with them, knew about their cultures. And suddenly I was in a place where that didn't exist. And this was a whole different subculture of people I've never met before. And they don't know anything about me. Right. And it was, it was, it was very interesting. It was a very interesting time and, and way to grow up. And I'm lucky... That, you know, that I found surfing or surfing found me yeah. early in the trip. You know, I was here a week before I met some kids that were like, we'll take you surfing. I was going to ask how you got into it. Uh, this kid named Justin Ibe, who I still surf with to this day, is one of my best friends. Hmm. And another guy named Saul Slauson. Okay. Whose kid, Levi Slauson, oh, yeah. is now killing things on the West Coast. Uh, NSSA, Open Boys yeah. and Men. Uh, he's on Volcom. Yeah, I helped him get on Volcom. Fair. Talk about things coming, you know, full circle. Um, but those were the two guys that I met first. And Justin invited Justin. We went out to lunch one day, and you could leave. Wait, you can leave? <laughs> you can leave school grounds to go to lunch? Like this is crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And we all packed into his uh, his Subaru um, hatchback, and we pulled into Tamarack parking lot, and they're watching guys surf. And suddenly, the, like I had no one. To, there was no, I, I didn't understand any words that they were saying mm. as they're talking about surfing. Yeah. But I was fascinated by it, and it looked to me like people breakdancing on water. 
That was the first, and I was a b boy. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, this is cool. I'm I'm down for this. And they he invited me to come down to his house that Saturday, and you know they get a board and wetsuit for me. You know, and I put on the I I was in the the bathroom of his garage, and those guys were all waiting for me. They gave me a wetsuit, green and yellow, Alita. And I came outside, and everyone fell to the ground laughing, like couldn't breathe. Laughing, and I'm standing in this driveway, like in this wetsuit that was too small for me. Going, what's the problem? I've never put on a wetsuit before. Put it on backwards, of course. Zipper up the front because yeah. what didn't you own that you didn't zip up to the front if right. you weren't a surfer? And that was when the ice broke. Um, and that was when the journey began. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that they were in, uh, inclusive. Like they let you into the community. You know. Yeah. They. They. It. It was. I was lucky that though they were the type of kids that they were. Okay. That particular crew, because a lot of the other kids were not inclusive. Yeah. And when I did start surfing and did start showing up at the beach, um, there were plenty of people who didn't have any problem telling me that I shouldn't be there. Yeah. Or making jokes. Or you don't swim. Or what's your black ass doing out here? Yeah. Um, literally, there were times when guys would like call my race into question when telling me to go paddle to the next peak. Um, and it was, it was strange, like telling kids that, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to surf and they're like, but you guys don't even swim. How are you going to learn to surf? Or people like just after a while, it's like, you're still making fun of me. Like that's the best shit that you can come up with is that I'm black. Yeah. What the fuck are you afraid of? And I started to get a little chip on my shoulder, but it helped because I think I counted the first... I was 16, so I'm playing catch-up to kids who have been surfing since probably there was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, the latest, right? right. I surfed 170 days in a row. Really? Did not miss a day. I was out there by myself, literally rain or shine. Hmm. I was like, not only am I going to fucking learn how to do this, but I'm going to get as good as you motherfuckers. Fuck you. I love this shit, too. This is, this is my shit, and no one's going to take it away from me. And I will say that is kind of the equalizer in the water. Like, you can be way cooler than some other dude on land, but when you paddle out and he rips, you kind of shut up. Yeah. You know, you kind of, you back off, you don't say anything, and it's like, well, okay. Yeah, and I never complained. I never, like, for as much racism as I've dealt with in the surf community, I've never made it the star of my story. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's like, People are assholes. Totally. And you're going to experience it one way or another. I think it sucks that we have a poor education system in general so that a lot of people, a lot of white people, just generally have a very poor knowledge and understanding of how we got here in America. Of really like the... The, the sub-chapters of the story of racism. Mm-hmm. So people will be like, slavery was, you know, it was abolished, you know, a hundred and some odd years ago. Why don't you guys get over it? Hey, I would love to wake up and not talk about race. It's the last thing I ever want to talk about. I want to enjoy my life. Yeah. But if it had stopped at slavery, maybe we, we, we would be over it by now. Mm-hmm. But they know nothing about Jim Crow. They know nothing about, you know... White flight. They know nothing about um, redlining of districts and people not being able to live where they wanted to live when they had money or, or when 
black soldiers came home from World War II, you know, after serving their country and not being able to get the loans, not being able to start their families in the way everyone else was, not being able to live where they wanted to, but being told, you stay over there. Same thing post-civil rights, you know, economically, just not people not being able to get home loans, you know, but even though they had the money, like having mandates that said, don't give them money. So not, not being able to set up simple things that like perpetual wealth that you could hand on to your kids and give them a chance, you know, and culling people together. Like there's a long list of things that have arrived that have us in this very strange place in America in 2017, in a place where it probably you would think, yes, it shouldn't be an issue anymore. Yeah. But people not wanting to at least have open enough eyes to how we've gotten here um, because they just weren't taught. I, I think it's naivety more than it is like I'm choosing to look the other way. I think a lot of people don't even know that they choose to look the other way. Right. Um, and I've experienced I experienced plenty of that uh, in, in the surf industry. But again, at the end of the day, it came down to like what standing on a wave for 10 seconds on Hemlock Street in early June of 1988, what that 10 seconds did to me, it was like time literally slowed. It was felt like something opened up in the heavens and there was a moment. I'll never forget it. It was transformative where it was like, this is who you are now. Hmm. And all of my directive shifted. I'd grown up a kid of the arts, you know, traveling with my dad as a musician, playing music myself, acting, having aspirations that that's what I was going to do was follow in the footsteps. And suddenly like standing on a piece of, you know, foam with a little wood down the middle of it and mm-hmm. some fiberglass, it altered that. It yeah. altered this, like this, like how my body like cells were going to vibrate from there on forward. So I don't want to get too uh, off into the woods and philosophical, but uh, Timothy Leary talked about that in some of the stuff that he was writing. Um, and Surfer Magazine, I don't know if you remember this article, but uh, Steve Pesman worked with Surfer and he wrote this article. It was like in the late 60s, mm. interviewed Timothy Leary because when Leary was preaching or not preaching, but going around giving these talks at universities he actually used surfers as the example of the most enlightened life form because all energy is transferred through waves. And surfers are the only human being who has figured out how to actually ride the wave. And the Which ultimate. Is energy. Yeah. And the ultimate state of kind of enlightenment is living in the now because you're always worried about some mistake that you made in the past or some. You're, you have anxiety about the future and what's to come. So being in the moment, Buddhists will tell you that like being in the moment is the ultimate form of enlightenment. Well, things are always moving and they're moving based these based on these energy waves. And a surfer has figured out how to live in the moment at all times by riding the wave. Mm. And so he compared everything and referenced it off of that. And he's like, even walking down the beach your sand print, your footprints in the sand will get eroded by the water. So even that gets washed away. But you riding that wave is the one moment in your life when you are like in harmony with Mother Nature, you know? 
So yeah, it's it's pretty profound. It, yeah, it makes sense. It's pure. It's pure presence. It's it's the reason why most of us can close our eyes and catalog. Yeah, and go directly to the feelings of turns that you did twenty years ago. Yeah, or that barrel that you got five, six, seven years ago. You go back and you can play that into your head, and it's there's such a it's a time stop continuum thing that happens and. It has to be what creates the addiction mm-hmm. because I was really good at a lot of other shit. Yeah. You know, I was a decent, good musician. I played good saxophone. I was a good singer. I was a decent actor. You know, I played basketball well. But nothing up until that point got me to be like, okay, I'm, I've got, I'm going to dig this, dig at this for the rest of my life. So, how do those things translate into broadcasting and why choose broadcasting among, among all those options? I think that broadcasting chose me oh, okay. more than I chose broadcasting. I got very lucky and found a way into the surf industry. You know, when I, when you tell your parents that you're not going to go to college because you, this thing you've discovered is more important to you, um, they freak out. My dad especially is like, what do you mean? What do they do? What are they doing to you out there in California? Yeah. You know, and on my, on my dad's side, there's a lot of academics. My, my aunt is like a, she's a serious professor, published, you know. Um, so she had high, high hopes for me in where I was going to go to school and, and joining the enlightened ranks of the, of the worldly massacres. And I'm like, no, I'm actually going to stay here and surf. Thanks. And I worked construction, and I was a janitor, and I cleaned windows, and did, you know, waited tables, and barbacked, and was a bouncer, was a bank teller at Bank of America. Wow. It's quite a resume. <laughs> Customer service agent <laughs> at Bank of America. And uh, I had and lost many, many jobs because of surfing, trying to find a way to support my lifestyle. I wasn't thinking about the future. I just wanted a job that would allow me to live and do this thing. Um, and I kept running my head into a wall when, could you imagine? It's the 80s, early 90s. And here's this kid that people can't put in a box who's in a completely white area. I'm one of the few black people. And also, like, by the way, I surf and do this thing. Like, the heads were yeah. spinning. Like, what do you, what do you mean? And I was late all the time, or I'd get caught for taking days off to, or surfing or going to the mountain. And finally, um, a guy named Chad Denena, who would go on to found Nixon Watches, he came into this restaurant that I was um, busting tables at called the Potato Shack in Encinitas. And he had on a badge for what was then the ASR trade show. And it said Transworld Publications on it. I was like, whoa, him and a few other people. I was like, whoa, they're thick. Transworld and they're going to the trade show and I went to the other guy who was a volleyball player um, that had a bus tables with and I said dude I'll give you five bucks let me have that table and he was kind of grounded I'm like dude five bucks ten bucks okay ten bucks give me ten bucks out of my tip money let me have that table and I went and I started busting the table greasing them with OJ's and coffee and making small talk and got to know that they worked at Transworld and they were on their way to the trade show they asked me what I did, and I told them I did this. And I was working at the Belly Up Tavern in Solana Beach at the time um, at night, and I was I was a surfer, you know, and a snowboarder. 
and skateboarder. And they were like, wow, cool, whatever. And Chad kept on coming in. And we became decent friends. And I always stoke him and his friends out. And one day he was like, what are you doing with your life? And it was kind of a weird question. Mm -hmm. Because I could see that it was sort of like he was curious and he felt sorry for me. And I was like, I'm good, I guess. I'm just, you know, figuring it out. But whatever I can do to keep, you know, I'm just living the life, man. I'm trying to shred. Mm -hmm. In my brain, I didn't realize, like, you work three jobs. Yeah. I was at Bank of America in the day, belly up at night, and busting tables on the weekends. But it was fine, because mm-hmm. I, all I needed was two surfboards. I didn't even have a car. I just, I was good. You know, I'd gotten to a weird place with my dad where he was really reeling some, some, with some of the problems that he was going through with addiction at the time, so I wasn't really dealing with him. And it was nice to be away from that and have my own thing that wasn't attached to, like, my father being this thing. Sure. And um, Chad was like, well... You need to figure it out, man. He's like, you got too much going for you, and people enjoy being around you, and here's my card. If you want a job, like, call me. I'm, I'll help you get a job at Transworld. Hmm. And it's one of those weird things where I had four roommates at the time, and he, he gave me his card, and I didn't call for, like, three or four days just because I was nervous. Like, you know, this weird thing, like, oh, maybe you, maybe he's wrong. Like, I'm, I'm good, like... It, it, it was scary to get out of my safe zone, which, how fucked up was it that my safe zone is, like, literally killing yourself for this thing you love? But you're going to have to make real change as soon as you make that call. Real change. Yeah. And do you have what it takes? And so I didn't call. And one day my, my, my roommate was like, what did you do? Would, have you called this dude yet? And they all sat around me and they were like, call. Picked up the phone, called him, left him a message, called me back, and he was a dick. He's like, I gave you my card. I told you to call me on Monday, dude. Uh-huh. It's fucking Thursday. We hired someone. It was a junior ad sales rep underneath him at Transworld. He's like, you literally, he's like, you blew it. Like, I'll see you around. Wow. <laughs> the phone just like literally gutted, like holding my guts in my hands. Like, you, you, you asshole. Yeah. He called me back two days later. Like three days later, he called me back and said, um, the girl who works the front desk, the receptionist, she's decided that she's going to go to school uh, part-time again and they need somebody. Mind you, I just had a junior ad sales rep underneath this dude. The coolest job you could mind, imagine having. He's like, if you, if you want it, take it and you can figure out a way to hustle your way back up into an opportunity here. Mm-hmm. And I did. I took it. I quit the bank. Um, and kept working the other jobs, and that was my foray into to the action sports world. Interesting. And it was was it bef- it was obviously before Transworld Surf magazine. It was before Transworld Surf. This is like circa ninety two. Okay. Ninety three. I worked there for a few years. Then I went to work for Chris Miller at Planet Earth, mm-hmm. um, doing sales, skateboard sales, helping him develop his snowboarding outerwear line. But I would at Transworld, I started announcing. Events. Okay. They had like, they did this event called Board Aid, um, which was like a music, snowboarding, surfing, um, excuse me, music, s- skateboarding, uh, and snowboarding up at Big Bear w- with uh, an organization called Lifebeat. And it was the way to, to raise awareness within the action sports community about HIV. It was still a big deal, HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And they had huge bands, Beastie Boys at the time, um, 
and all sorts of big, big bands, you know, Pennywise, that would come in and play. And the first one, they literally couldn't find a host. And I was sitting there at the front desk, and um, Louise Balma was, I heard, overheard her, because my, my whole thing at the front desk was like, I knew everything that was going sure. on. So people were calling in, and it would literally be like Tony Hawk to talk to Grant Britton. Like, Tony Hawk, just one second. What the fuck is Tony Hawk? Yeah, no problem. How's it going? Right. So I, I, was, I was Switzerland within Switzerland, where everyone had to be cool with me, and I was cool with everyone. I was helping every department. You guys need envelope stuff. Like, what can I do to get off of this desk? Yeah. And I overheard Louise say they didn't have someone to host it. And I just was like, I could do it. Mm-hmm. Did, She's like, what do you mean? I was like, no, I could, I could totally be your MC. And she looked at me and she remembered that I had been funny at like a holiday party. And they talked and she's like, okay, cool. And that was really where it began. Wow. Was emceeing this, this boarded event, which I ended up emceeing five years in a row, maybe more. And then people would call to be like, hey, we heard that you killed it at Board Aid. Like, do you want to come announce our demo at our shop? Like, we can't pay you, but we'll give you like $50 store credit. Cool. No problem. Yeah. Then that would lead to like, oh, we're doing a contest up here at, you know, at Bend or at Mount Hood. And we can't pay you, but we'll give you plane ticket, a place to stay and lift tickets for three days. Can you come? Sure. Boom. I'm there. Yeah. And that became a side hustle that I had. And no matter what brand that I worked at. Whether it was Transworld, Planet Earth, or I was at Reebok. I, I, I was a team manager, marketing guy for Box, which was uh, their first foray in action sports before Nike did it. I signed Andy and Bruce Irons when they were 16 and 17, 18 respectively. Went and lived with them for a month at their house in Kauai in 1996 to make the deal with Phil Irons at a wow. time when Reef was offering them like an crazy amount of money but no one flew and chilled with the family and that's how I got the deal interesting um, so I was building credibility within the industry by building relationships and I was the guy that people knew like if I was at an event and I had a microphone it was going to be a good time yeah and it was just happened to be at a time when the culture was really shifting from action sports as, as a whole it was do it yourself you had to be friends with everyone even competing brands right. even competing brands had to be down with each totally. other because there were no big entities that were willing to spend tons of money to support us. So you got together and you figured out how can we make this event that's going to be great for our thing. Because it was still our thing. There was no... It just... It, no one cared other right. than us. And um, those days were special in the industry because you could not be too cool you couldn't just put on clothes and also be like i do this thing no if you saw someone who dressed like you 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 took them as like oh you do this thing and there is this unspoken bond Mm -hmm. um and so when you know the mtvs of the world and the espn start realizing and madison avenue realizes like there's millions of kids that are doing these sports and we don't have their money let's get them Mm mm-hmm I was in the right place at the right time. Like when MTV started doing that, MTV Sports and Music Festivals, they called. Um, I had just started Alphanumeric Clothing. It was like '98, and they they called uh, Transworld and said, "We need somebody to be with Carson Daly who can talk about skateboarding and and BMX and stuff at this Sports and Music Festival." And they're like, "Oh, you got to call Sal." And the oh, first year, they didn't hire me. Oh, really? Because they were like, "He's black." Oh. What does he know about this? 
And they literally, like, the idea of, like, someone who looked like Bill Bellamy isn't going to be an expert on hip-hop and R&B, but is going to be an expert on these things. Yeah, that doesn't fit in our box. Or maybe he's just not going to appeal to the kids who we're trying to sell the clothing to. Right. You know? They didn't know, like, oh, no, they're actually, that yeah. I'm, I, I was at that time the person. Right. One of the few people. Yeah. You know, there was Pat Parnell at the time. Um, who was also doing some announcing and, and a few other people. Matty Liu for a little bit. Yeah, Matty Liu. Um, you know, Peter King. PK had his own yeah. show. He had Boy Blast, right. which a lot of people don't realize. He was like the first, he was the first crossover action sports personality star. Like PK was actually the person that let me know like, oh, I could do this. Yeah. Like wasn't taking anything away from him, but I'm like, but he's doing it. There's, and he's doing it his way. There's room. I've got, like, the test to prove that I can do this within our community. I can do it on another level. I remember him on MTV when I was a kid. Yeah. As a VJ. Yeah. You know? And, you know, people didn't realize that he was also, like, an accomplished pro surfer. Right. Cover shots. Uh, yeah. Cover shots. Legit. You know, parts in the Billabong movies. Yeah. Like, he was the real deal. Um, and anyway, that's how that's how it started. You know, and the, the next year they hired me. They hired, like, some, some girl who claimed to be a pro snowboarder who wasn't good on camera and the right. next year they finally hired me and that's when I got my break and then ESPN saw that and I was team manager and marketing director for Alphanumeric and I had our snowboard team at an event in Colorado the Van Triple Crown of Snowboarding and um, I was there with the team and at the end of competition we're in the bar and you know post contest bars going crazy and this guy comes up to me taps me on the shoulder and says excuse me are you Sam Asakella? I said, yeah. He said, my name's Phil Orleans. I'm the executive producer of snowboarding at uh, the ESPN X Games. And I literally stood up in my bar stool and said, who the fuck put this guy up to this? <laughs> fuck you. Whoever, fuck you. And <laughs> sat back down. And I turned around and he's still standing there. And he pulls out an embossed, like, red leaf, like, like, you know, like like, Amer like American a, Psycho, the scene where they yeah, exactly who has the best business like card. exactly like oh that's like the seventy five cent a card card right and it's thick and it's Lin. ESPN and X Games and I was like oh shit I'm so sorry and he's like can I talk to you outside of the bar I was like sure and we went and we sat down he bought a six pack and we talked for four hours wow and he asked me everything that I thought about the X Games now mind you. 1995, 96, 97, the X Games were, it was, for us, in the culture, it was like, oh, God, this is the worst thing ever. It was still the Extreme Games. Mm -hmm. You know, they had purple ramps, and they had broadcasters who knew nothing about this. They were taking stick and ball guys and putting them in the role of reporters and play-by-play, -play, and it was hard. Like, you could, I couldn't go and do an NFL game. Right. That sound like, oh, that guy just caught the ball. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, he's fast. What a hit. <laughs> and it was the reverse, but it made us look, for us, it was like, this is this is horrible. Yeah. And so I just, I told him all that. I, I was, at the end of our conversation, I thought there's no way that uh, they're going to hire me. But he told me that he was there looking for me. And they had seen some stuff that I'd done, and they felt like they had made a decision that they wanted to get credible voices from the culture, myself yeah. and a few other people. And... That's where it started. And I, I initially was going to say no. And I went home 
from that trip, and I told like everybody at the company, I was like, this guy from ESPN says, you know, want, they want me to come and work on the X Games. I was like, fuck that, you yeah. shit twack. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is an opportunity. They're going to do it with or without you. It's going to become something. And they were like, if there's anyone who could help represent yeah, us, exactly. don't you want it to be you? And that was the aha moment. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. You know, I was still I was still in that mindset of like, don't rock the boat. Life is good. I don't want to make. It took me a very very long time to learn how to start taking chances, mm. to re- take real chances and make change. And that was the biggest, arguably the. I don't even know. That was the biggest one. That was the life changer. Well, it sounds like you've always had a good network of friends around you, telling you to make that first phone call. You know. From being the busboy, and then in that situation as well, look at it from this angle. One hundred percent. Friends are key. Friends are key, and that's it. To me, it's one of it's the bedrock of what, at its core, has always made the the industry something special. It's changed. Yeah. Now it has. It's changed a lot, but in those early years, you know, most of my best friends are guys who I started with as team managers with in the nineties, who now run companies. Well, there was so much less money involved too. You know, it's like even the biggest companies are making five million bucks or something a year. You know, so all of us just wanted different. to live. Yeah. We wanted to work amongst a group of people that weren't going to be mad that the ways were good. And I came in at ten right. instead of nine. That's not going to be a fireable offense. Right. Or hey, it's going to snow on Friday. We're going to bust our asses all week, and we're going to take off at noon on Friday, and I'll go shred. Which, by the way, to be perfectly honest. The world is caught up with that model. Like if you look at the most forward-thinking companies, like in the tech sector, Google, whomever, like they're not requiring to work, you to work nine to five, five days a week, but they assume you're on 24-7. Right. You're always making moves. You're always negotiating something in your head. You're creatively solving problems. And if you show up at 10, no big deal. Nobody's looking. But if you have to work on a Saturday when you're at home and return emails or solve something, you'll be doing that too. Yeah, you're handling your business. I yeah. think you, now that you say it, we were definitely early adopters or, or, or trailblazers of, of making your life count for as much as your job. Totally. Because you I, believe in it. And that was a thing that in all those other places, thank God that it didn't work out for me. People try to convince you that your fucking job is more important than important than your life and how you live. Yeah. We're all in this vessel on borrowed time. Yeah. Who the fuck are you going to serve? Are you going to serve someone else or at the end of the day be able to look in the mirror and be like, I serve you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what made whatever you want to call it the birth of the, the core of, of our generation special and that we were... Literally going to be like, we play as hard as we work mm-hmm. and don't get the, the two twisted. Like that shit that I get paid for is not more important than how I live yeah. and who my friends are. And that was, that was, I think that's what gave us the fuel to, to, to achieve shit that sh- shouldn't have happened for most people who didn't even have college educations, right. but had a shit ton of passion. Right. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. 
your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I'm going to do a hard pivot um, into kind of surfing and broadcast, not just your broadcast career, but the current incarnation of the WSL, where they're achieving, where they're failing, mm. um, and then talk about this upcoming 2017 season. On this podcast, I oftentimes, and like I said, my co-host Scott, will oftentimes kind of shamefully throw stones at WSL commentators um, <laughs> because we have a false sense of anonymity with because we're recording with microphones and not cameras. It feels like we're just talking amongst ourselves. Right. You know, so it's easy to make fun of other people when I would never be that unkind in person. Um, but the reality is like those guys, they're trying to appeal to a broader audience. So when, when I watch the WSL let's say Pipe Masters event, and then I watched you guys doing the Volcom event in the beginning of 2017, they're very, very different. And the Volcom event is much more enjoyable to watch because you guys are using surf slang and you're commentating with the assumption that I know what's what and I can follow along. Whereas I think the WSL is playing down to the lowest common denominator a bit. And good, I get it. I know it. I understand why you guys are doing it and I'm not shaming you but my question to you is as a guy who's worked outside of surfing in skate snow but also you've done nba stuff and where do you see there is the most room for growth in the current kind of professional surfing broadcast world I where are the biggest failures where's the most growth i think the biggest failure for the wsl machine was in trying to strip trying to strip surfing of what makes it unique. I mean this is not and trying to make it football. Like it felt like the the manner in which the stakes were presented on a regular basis was what you were getting in an NFL game. Um and, and not surfing. Like Surfing is unique in that it's competitive, but it is a shit ton of fun. It comes with all these weird little nuances um, and lingo and jargon. And there's some inside shit that only... There's a reason why the, the phrase exists, only a surfer knows the feeling. And 
for me personally, I think you start there to pull people in. And you can be informative. And you can, in the banter between the analyst and the host, ask the type of questions that allow someone who's watching for the first time to get some insight. But don't alienate your core. Right. And I believe that in the beginning, they really went out of their way to alienate the core with the idea that they had, I think they had delusions that all of a sudden people who didn't care about surfing were going to stop what they were doing to, to watch surfing. Yeah. Fucking surfers can't even agree on what's happening when they're watching surfing. Right. So now you're going to tell me that a bunch of people in the Midwest or countries that outside of maybe a small few who are just down to watch anything that's competitive are going to care to the point that it's going to tilt the scale in how we're perceived around the rest of the world. I don't believe that. No. So for me, my mindset from the very beginning was like, make it polished, make it professional, make it look amazing, serve your core. You don't see... I can watch NASCAR on a Sunday and have zero fucking idea of the nuance of what's happening. I got to keep paying attention because NASCAR serves their core. I, I was going to ask you for an example outside of surfing that is doing a good job at it. I, I don't watch NASCAR, so I'm or I've not tried. I don't either. But if I if I if I do tune in, yeah, they're serving it's entertaining. Their, it's entertaining, but they're also serving their core, and you're learning. But you, you're finding out different shit about these people from from a perspective of like, there's history here. Mm-hmm. This is not the first time that's happening. And there's other things that influence how we've gotten to this place and time. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I, was, I was really happy when, when Ross Williams came along. Because I, I felt like Ross definitely helped to break that. Um, and you can love him or hate him. I love him. Um, but Ross brought in, wait a minute, like I'm going to call this how I see it. And I'm going to call it how I see it relative to what I bring with me and my knowledge of surfing. Like, I'm going to have, I'm going to stick my neck out. I'm going to have some opinion and hopefully create some debate. Yeah. I felt that a lot of times what I was watching was, was people simply just agreeing with each other. Totally. And providing no context and zero debate. I was so excited when they had the desk come along. I was like, ooh, it's going to be on. And in the very, in the beginning... It just didn't feel like there was any stakes for me to watch. And then Strider, he said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try to be that person and shake it up a little bit. And again, people could love him or hate him, but at least he was willing to stick his neck out a little bit yeah. and make it somewhat interesting. But again, for me, it all came down to, and it takes nothing away from Joe or, or Potts or any of them. I just don't feel like they were set up. They weren't given free reign. To just relax. Who the fuck can talk about surfing for eight hours? Yeah. And not have fun. That's a prison sentence. Totally. It's surfing. Yeah. And now not only are we not going to have fun, but we're going to like low-key pass judgment on how people are behaving, etc. Like, come on. So you talk about hoping for debate and that sort of thing. My problem with those first couple of years was similar to that, which is just nobody's allowed to express negativity at, on on the air. Yes. And, and we all know, I guarantee you, 
Joe Turpel has a favorite surfer out there. Joe and has a favorite. Joe has an opinion. Totally. But Pots he's never saying everybody in the water is like, that was the best tube ride I've ever seen. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. I, I mean, he, me even at, like all the way down to the end of a wave where guys aren't even like, like no shots are allowed to be taken no. at what people are witnessing on the screen. Yeah. And again, it's not an indictment of them. But if you're not allowed to call out the fucking judges right. when everyone else at home is... Right. Then what the hell are we watching? You're a- you're alienating the viewer, which is doing what you said originally, alienating the core user. I can watch an NBA game. Yeah. If there's a shit call, the commentators are going to say, that's the worst and most horrible call I've ever seen. Right. The athlete or the coach, they can't say that in their post-heat interview. They're going to get fined. Yeah. Post-game interview in the NBA, whatever it is, they're going to get fined. Yeah. The commentators have the unique space and place that they actually can be representative of the audience and say what people are witnessing and have opposing thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it so beautiful. That's the only reason why you should be listening to a broadcast anyway. Totally. Otherwise, you can have just as much fun turning the volume off and talking shit with your friends. I think that's an important distinction is that I think that is how the WSL commentators felt was like they were representatives of the, the WSL and the WSL. And that's for me personally, yeah. that's bullshit. You're hanging the dudes out to dry. Yeah. Because yes, you, I'm, I'm employed by you, but at the end of the day, you're employing me to represent what's happening here. And I have to have an unbiased voice yeah. that represents what I'm hap- giving context to what's happening here. And the things that I am seeing behind the scenes that you're not seeing from behind your laptop, mm-hmm. but at the same time, representing the fact that I'm speaking to people who are watching from all over the world. Right. And I am, I am supposed to represent them as well. Yeah. And that's the thing that for the first couple of years was missing to the point where you just want to run your head into the wall. Mm-hmm. And I felt, I felt sorry for those guys, and it was easy to see... That their hands were tied, that so, they were handcuffed. Yeah, I agree. and again, this is not an indictment of any of those dudes. It's just like clearly, your hands are cuffed. Yeah. So it's and that's not surfing. That's not how people talk about surfing. Right. And you can do that in a professional manner, but raise the stakes for why we're watching. Well, I think that you mentioned Ross Williams. I I really liked Ross as an addition because. One of my complaints also is always that there's a level of professionalism that's missing out of surfing. And I can give you a million examples, but it's like Quicksilver's Instagram account rife with grammatical errors in a post, you know, or just real basic stuff that I shouldn't be so critical. But honestly, I have delicate sensibility and it's kind of offending. Them, you know what I mean? Like, I, I know I'm the dick here. Right. So, like, I know really nobody gives a crap. I'm the guy. But... I felt that way with um, the commentary team, too, where it's like, look, guys, you need to be able to form a sentence if you're going to be calling the game. And so I think that Ross elevated it in that way. And there's a couple other guys, too, but Ross specifically was like, he's clearly intelligent. He's clearly articulate. He still uses lingo and slang. So he's got a (laughs) there's an email that circulates around. Um, that's literally just a list of Rossisms and really? it's pages and pages long. And if you just read them all by yourself, by themselves individually, you just can't stop laughing. They're it's so genius. Good. And you're like, this stuff just comes out of his brain. But if you're friends with Ross, you know that that's just 
how he is and every time he has says some new shit he's like that way he's like that when you're surfing in the water with him yeah when he tells you to paddle for a wave he'll give you some look at that euphemism avoc- look, look at that avocado you need to go and split like what did you just say okay i'm gonna paddle over there yeah and do but, that but what's funny and that's what we love about surfing is that like i know exactly what he's talking about when he says this this metaphor that i've never actually heard before i know what he means by it right you know and so i'm part of the inside crowd even though i've never met ross and so I love that Ross is able to kind of walk he built a relationship with he built a relationship with you by putting himself out there and giving you a substance the substance of who he is yeah so I don't know if you saw the news just on Friday, but Ross will not be commentating in two thousand seventeen I was aware of the news two weeks ago okay uh he's coaching John John so I was aware. <laughs> <laughs> what go ahead no, we had that conversation in Hawaii. Okay. Um, we 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 talked about it on the golf course that that was probably going to be the case. I think that he was looking for uh, perhaps an opportunity to do both or to, to guest um, at times because I think he'd have very interesting perspective being in this corner. But um, maybe that part didn't work out. But I think mm-hmm. Ross as a coach, and I told him this before. I was like, look, dude. I think what you do as an analyst is brilliant, but if you're not, I said to him, if you're not, if you're not able to, to, to get the most out of that or, you know, really feel like you're, you're getting full fulfillment, you have an opportunity to work with fucking Kelly Mm 2.0, like a kid who's just embraced the fact that it's okay to work for it. Yeah. And look what one year of doing that has done for him. Well, so Mike, the conversation I'm interested in having is I'm always curious about the value of a coach mm-hmm. in, in surfing specifically, not in other things. But it seems to be the value is undeniable when you look at what Glenn Hall has done for, I mean, he coached Tyler Wright to a world title. He brought Matt Wilkin into title contention. Matt Wilkinson into title contention, and Wilco. I, he's the last guy I would have expected to actually buckle down. The guy who used to wear a sardine wetsuit exactly. and show up in rollerblades right. was number one in the world, winning the first two events of the season. Number one in the world, crazy. And until the wheels fell off the bus, because suddenly he was like, "Oh shit, this is fucked. I don't know how to mentally handle this." He. Lost his confidence in himself, in his not in himself, but in his abilities in the moment, which is natural if you've never like if yeah. that's not how you're normally built. Yeah, and he had to go back to the drawing board. So you look at Wilco and what we know about Wilco, it can only be his success can only be attributed to the addition of Glenn Hall. So I have to recognize the value of the coach, but I just wonder what is the qualification for a coach because it's clearly not being the best surfer in the world. We've seen the best coaches not be the best surfers in the world. So I'm curious, how does Ross what what role does he play with John John? How does he give John John coaching? Like Phil Jackson wasn't the greatest basketball player on earth, right? Yeah. Have you seen like the Van Gundy brothers? No. Uh, Stan Van Gundy. You know these are basketball coaches oh, okay. that look basically look like the Super Mario brothers. <laughs> um, well, I guess what I'm saying is what I, what I believe a coach brings in this particular style yes. iteration of um, 
competitive surfing is perspective. Okay. Is perspective and a point of view relative to experience and allowing you to an option to see things outside of your eyes in the moment and giving you um, giving you sort of a, a wealth of information or a playbook to go to when you find yourselves in situations and you just want to react via emotion, right? Like I think we all look at the 30 minutes far different than what it's like to be in a heat in those 30 minutes. There's no... There's no um, tried and true, like, perfect method that's going to work. But obviously, Glenn took a bunch of people and got them to get their heads together. Mm-hmm. Not their surfing. Mm-hmm. It's their fucking heads. If you ask Kelly why he thinks it's going to be hard for John John or Gabrielle to win, you know, Number 11 two. world titles, he'll tell you two things. One, mentally... It's super, super hard to stay in the dance and everything that comes with it once you're number one. The other thing he'll tell you is that he'll tell you is that each other. In other words, he's got to, to deal with the fact that there's a Gabby. Gabby's got to deal with the fact that there's a John John. Kelly had a very unique road in that there was no other him other than Andy. And even and even for Andy, it wasn't sustainable. Right. Like at a certain point, that wasn't sustainable. I think what Kelly has, aside from just an ability that to like freakish isn't even a good enough word. Yeah. He has a selfish, selfish, selfish discipline and ability to deep dive and focus one hundred percent on himself. And in what it takes to win. And to be honest, I don't see that with John John. Like, I've seen an unbelievable determination and drive out of other world champs, like Gabriel Medina, Adriana de Souza for sure, Mick Fanning. Those guys wanted to be world champ more than anybody else in the years that they won. But even Mick, it took a coach for Mick. Who, who is he working with? I forget with? his name, but he had. But he, for sure, he's coached. He's coached, like coached with like science coached. Yeah. So, but with John John, so what John John does have is that freakish ability that Kelly had, and that brought him to the world title. But I don't see John John coming back into this year necessarily with the same amount of drive that those other guys won their world titles with, you know? So I'm wondering if maybe, maybe that's where Ross comes in. I think he likes winning. I think he's found out how cool winning feels for yeah. him. I think um, being. By the way, Mick Fanning's coach was Phil McNamara. Okay. Um, and I think the fact that he decided to train for you, actually physically train and work right. out. Right. He was going off a of natural ability before. Yeah. Um, he didn't have any plan to this heat other than to blow up, mm-hmm. show up and blow up. He still played around with that thing in his head where like it's not okay to like shift gears. Yeah. So he employed those things, right? Got disciplined and set goals. Yeah. And it changed. So now what do you bring in to sort of... Now that you've experienced that once, what do you, what do, you do to sustain that? Mm. If, if that's not your natural ability, yeah. like you said, like a Kelly. What do you do to sustain that? And I think uh, someone, someone like Ross, who's also from Hawaii... That's 
Okay, he's from Hawaii. He's had over a decade experience on tour. He knows the, the ins and outs of it. He's grown up with him. He's known him since he was a ki- little kid. Mm-hmm. There's a familiarity there to having someone like that in your camp as opposed to someone who maybe doesn't get those things about you. Yeah. And certainly Ross, I think, understands heat strategy. Like Ross did well on tour, not because he was the best surfer on tour. Precisely. It's because he was able to imp- He's a gamer. strategy. Yeah. He's a gamer. He's a gamer on the golf course. Yeah. He's super, super competitive, and he's he's like he's wily. Yeah, you know he's he's going to employ tricks and get excited about being able to beat you when he shouldn't. Yeah, and if you can take a guy who should win and put him in a position where he almost he has the tools of someone who shouldn't, mm-hmm. coupled with that natural ability, it'd be fun. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking there is a common denominator among the more successful coaches that we've seen in surfing. Whether it be Glenn, um, Mike Parsons would fit this. Yes. Um, where they're all mild-mannered dudes. None of them have huge emotional spikes. And they're kind of tempering the Wilkos of the world, you know, who have that raw emotion and helping them kind of find that balance. Yeah, no one wants to be yelled at. Yeah. You know, there's no room for that in like that, that type of coach just yeah. wouldn't work. No. Not at, not at not at the at the top level. You see it, you know, on the weekends at an NSSA event yeah. where guys who never got to live their dreams are, you know, talking to these kids in in manners where you just want to walk up and punch them. Totally. That goes for the parents too. Mostly. You know, parents, you, you yeah. see it all the time, and that's what makes it surf. That's what's sad to me is that you, you see a lot of these parents and sort of aspirational coaches. Thinking that there's some fucking pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. John John's, you know, $30 million contract, it's him on an island by himself. Everybody else is hoping that at the end, when it's all said and done, that they maybe made two or three million dollars. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Collectively, when it's all said and done. Yeah. You're fighting for a very small, small, small piece of pie and lying to your kids, most of the most of you parents and coaches out there. Yeah. Especially at this the way that the industry has shifted, there are one or two John Johns and then a bunch of dudes scrapping for Look at what happened to Hurley. Yeah. They woke up. Yeah. They were like, wait a minute, we got a bunch of like the same people that we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to, and we got one guy who's like the guy. Yep. That's basically Kelly 2.0. We can build our whole brand around his story and then put a few people underneath him. Yep. Okay, giant team that we inherited from Nike and we did the right thing for as long as we could. Of course, yeah. This is no longer sustainable. No. And it so happens to be at the exact same time that the surf industry is basically the tit- has, has hit the iceberg. Mm-hmm. It's the Titanic. And there are a lot of people who like they like the band. They're sitting there trying to play the violins and... Thinking like, no, it's over. Yeah, the surfing machine is over, and it's exciting to me because it forces it to come back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this. Mostly, it comes back to like people who really care, mm-hmm. like people who live this, and out of that are starting to, I think, become brands who are taking advantage of that. Like if you look at Rourke, yeah, you know, totally. they're a classic example of like. They, they took advantage of being like, you know what? That's cool if you guys want to be on Jock Boulevard. 
But at the end of the day, it's about this journey and experience and interaction and being able to feel like anywhere you go in the world, I have something in common with someone who lives a completely different life than me. Mm -hmm. And they've built that into a story that you can get behind. And you don't... The fucking world tour travels around the world. And I get like a little like 20 second snippet of some locals, like someone blowing a didgeridoo or like some Fijian singing and... Yeah. That's the perspective of, of where I'm at and what it is. Like, yeah. mm, there's no content to sort of support that. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, looking at this 2017 WSL season, um, we, ha- we have Mick and Owen returning into competition. Mm. Mick from taking a year off just to cool his jets and rest his head, Owen, because of an injury. Where do you see those guys finishing and performing and... What are your thoughts on those? Uh, my money is on... I, I would put my early money on Mick for a world title. For a title? Yeah. Yeah? If you can... If you could get attacked by a shark... <laughs> come back... Only surf the events that you want to... He surfed four events. And he requalified. And requalified. And won. And run. by the way, go back to the scene of the crime... Yeah. And win. And lose your brother. Again. Mm-hmm. Not the first time you've lost your brother. A brother. And gather yourself. And, and, and oh, by the way, your marriage ends. If you can resolve all that and then decide to go on a journey that allows you to, like, go be... Tom Curran-esque for a minute and have the most fun and come back into your whole self and then feel like, you know what? I'm going to go back and do this committed. Fucking, I'm praying for all you guys. Mm-hmm. Because what's... I have three minutes to go and I'm down. I need a score. What's that to make Fanny? Like, let's really put that into perspective relative to everything he's been through. Oh, and I've won three of these. That's the thing. He's already done it. I've done it, and then I've taken the... I have, like, real life scars. I've lived and gone through some shit. Yeah. Ain't nothing gonna rattle me. In fact, I'm going to come back and have all of the fun on Earth. And by the way, have you seen my ability at this moment in time that comes with that? It's unquestioned. And his fitness, too. That's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, his ability, which is ability yeah. based in the work put in, the fitness, etc. His ability to be like, I'm going to go party and I'm going to deep dive train for six weeks. <sighs> Let's go. Okay. Well, then let me throw in one caveat. Can you win a world title in 2017 without being able to do full rotation airs? Yes. You can? I do. I believe so. All right. We'll see. By the way... Fuck full rotation airs. (laughs) Like, and I say fuck... We'll see what you're saying at the Gold Coast, though. When I say fuck full rotation airs, I don't mean that. I just mean that when it comes to surfing, having borrowed from skateboarding and snowboarding to get these tricks, that the surf community hasn't figured out a way to actually honor where the tricks have come from and call a 540 or 540 or call a McTwist a McTwist or really look at... Let's research where this has come from and actually give these tricks due. Yeah. That's why I say fuck full rotation. Because I think surfing as a whole 
has been super lazy and done a shit job of honoring where this progression has come from. Got that it. being said, do I think you can win if you're Mick Fanning without that? Yes. Because there's only one other person on the tour who can do his turns. Two other people who can do those type of turns consistently. To me. Connor Coffin? Mm, no. Who? Connor can do the turns, but he can't do them consistently. Who? Kelly. John John. For me, personally. Yeah. Everybody who's listening to the podcast is, can curse me up and down, and I'm sure yeah. they've got their people. But I'm talking about turns that make you have to stop and look at the turn you're looking at. Totally. And treat it like an air. Yeah. And I think that he's got that ability, not to mention, like... What he can do in the barrel, it gives him the ability to be, yes, it gives him the ability to be able to do so without having the biggest tricks on earth. And maybe he doesn't win those events, but he makes the quarters and the semis. That's totally a legitimate argument. You know what I mean? He makes, he doesn't, sure, he doesn't win those events, but he makes quarters and semis, and then he goes at Cam at like J Bay and all these other places. We know he can win at big barreling reef breaks. So like South Pacific, Pipe, J Bay for sure. I just question, um, like, snapper. When you watch Felipe surf snapper, you're like, well, it's impossible to surf better than that guy. True. When the waves are less than But what perfect. snapper are we going to get? Right. Looks like it's going to be five feet, right. apparently. And I don't know if it's going to be perfect or not, but if it's perfect, then you can open up the door to more guys. Exactly. Fanning, Parko. But yeah, out the gates. I'm not saying he wins out the gate. Yeah. Absolutely not. But, it, but I'm saying for the long game. I like it. Uh, I like I like him in I like him in the long game. I like the pick, and I, I love Fanning. And Fan, interestingly, Fanning's a guy who I actually didn't love initially, but like his work ethic and tenacity won me over. It's just like, dude, the guy is so unbelievably and he's gotten, consistent. He's gotten better in the last totally. year. Totally, he's actually gotten better in the last year or two, and he also feels confident enough to at least like throw the surprise air when he wants to. That's not going to be a credit card. They so they. Ripco released an edit a couple months ago with him like I saw that tr- yeah there was, was a bad edit it was, like, it was a bad, bad one <laughs> it was a bad one to claim like oh Mick can do airs now like don't do that to him yeah like there's the one unmade that they do in super slow mo like it's no you don't do that in 2017 it's better to not show us that and then we lands in snapper and does an air then we all ex- rejoice ex- exactly it was like when Kieran Perot did a double grab and they gave him an eight right. in competition because right. We've never seen him do like, it before. Oh, lightning. What what so, just happened? Um, okay. Uh, what about Kelly has – maybe you have insight into this actually. But Kelly has – it's rumored that he has said this is going to be his final year on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was reported. I, I don't think he actually commented on that. But where do you see Kelly finishing 2017? Uh, top five. Really? I'll give him top five. Okay. Um – with Kelly, it all comes down to momentum and interest. And interest means, can I keep myself in the conversation? We saw that this last year. You know what I mean? Like, once, once it felt good again, he went ham. You know, no one, no one expected him to, I think, to do what he did um, and feel the way he did at lowers, etc., well, when the waves are perfect, right? nobody's on the level that he's on. Like in Chopu, 8 to 10 feet, it's like, well... Skelly against the world. I also think that he... I, I, think, I think he did the 2015 season 
in an R and D type mode. Yeah. I like. I think it was poor poor decision making to. They, 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 you know, in every other sport, you test equipment in practice. He's testing, he was testing equipment um, in game. Mm-hmm. And there were times when he looked pedestrian at best totally. because of it. Like at Bells, it was hard to watch yeah. two years ago. Like, oh God, like I'm watching the best surfer in the history of mankind. Uh, and it, uh, because of the equipment choice, He's riding it better in that moment than anyone else could, but yeah. it ain't working. I think he was riding that banana. Yeah, and the, it didn't. It, it didn't work. Yeah, and it just it didn't work in those conditions. It needs like a hollow, tight space. Exactly. He's figured that out. Yeah. He's humbled himself, or not even humbled himself. He's figured out what he need to figure out and put that into the boards that he can go out and win on in a more conventional manner and take those little elements from all those things that he loves. And now. He's feeling spicy, interested, and focused. Is he, though? I think he likes the story. He he loves the... Dude, the, the 12... I was there for 10. I was there with him for the whole journey. I went to Puerto Rico. I was there in his camp for 10 and 11. I know what happens to him when he gets focused. And he the idea that he's 45... And this has never happened before. And he literally, like, he loves to, to take ceilings and throw them out the window. I agree with that. I just haven't seen the focus. Like, and I agree that he has the ability to focus more than anybody. And especially with the R&D year that you're talking about, him riding that banana model in waves that weren't hollow, where he shouldn't have been riding it, I wonder how much of that had to do with him R&Ding for this board company more than it was for him figuring out what he no, could win he, in the contest. That's my point. Like I also saw him I saw him catch the best wave I've ever seen ridden by a human that same year at 8 foot restaurants, the best restaurants I've ever served in my life. He paddled about 100 and maybe 10 yards deeper than everyone else and got three barrels that I will still haunt my brain. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen in real life on a surfboard. Really? On that board. Is so, the footage out there? Does somebody have it? No. He's got some GoPro of it, but it was uh, it was kind of shitty. Okay. But you ask anybody who was there that day, and they'll tell you, like, oh, that's one of the best waves I've ever seen. seen I'm, not, I'm not, like, no hyperbole, like, in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it, and he's, he's admitted that as far as focus is concerned that he's had other shit going on yeah. obviously with the ranch and without a known I think that he has the ability and he's been forced to just from like his own wanting to enjoy his life to allow the people that he's put in place to run things to actually okay. run them enough that a person like him the level of focus that he needs is different from everyone else's yeah like he's always going to if you're friends with him, you know, like, he's he's an expert on everything. He can tell you who's won every fight in, in, in UFC for the last X amount of years. He can tell you what's going on on the outer spectrum of some of the world's weirdest thinkers. And you're like, wait, how do you... He's just... He's an information person all day. He goes back and watches every heat. You know, 
in a contest. Like he sees what the scores are. He's a person who like he can't help himself that way when it comes to info. He doesn't need the same amount of space and time. He needs his space and time to be sure. focused. And if he can do that, yeah. which looks different than everyone else's, but is unique for him, then I, I honestly believe he can, can contest. That being said, it comes down to interest. If the first three events go shitty for him, I don't know that you're going to see him continue to be excited. He's not going to want to come from, from far behind. I know you just want our heroes to go out on top, you know. Yeah, you it's want like, him. You want. I want him to be like. I want it to be a, a victory lap where he, the whole world does. Even the people who are like, oh, he's overrated. Yeah. Um, you all w- want to see it come down to him contesting. You don't want. I don't want to see it be like Michael Jordan on the Wizards. Right. Exactly. Where it's like, oh, he retired. I didn't even know that that exactly. was that was a thing. Be like Seinfeld. Right. <laughs> Drop the mic. Right. So I. I am the biggest Kelly fan, and I want to see him win every event this year, but I'm also feeling need to call a spade a spade. And to be honest, I don't think he's the best surfer at Snapper. I don't think he's the best surfer at Margaret River. I don't think he's the best surfer at Bells. I think I agree. I like I think I like Felipe is better than him at Snapper, and I can name other guys in these other places, except when the waves are really big, really perfect, and really challenging at world class spots, which Margaret River isn't really, you know? So you put him in Chopu when it's eight to ten feet, cloud break, pipeline. That's where Kelly is the best in the world. Right. No doubt. Jeffries. Yeah, but then I even would argue maybe Fanning might fit in there somewhere. Uh, Jordy can, might fit in there. But again, if we're talking about just a numbers game, I'm just talking about the places, lowers. I'm just talking about the places where given his record, he can show up and do enough yeah. to be in the conversation. Yeah. That's I agree that, with that. France. I'm just talking about the places where you have to... And that's the thing with him. It's like if you look at each event, you're like, oh, shit. He won that this many times. He's made the, the semi this many right. times. Like You can't deny... You can't. You can't deny the, the, the mathematical possibilities for him in those places. Yeah. And what he does have that maybe only Mick has... Totally. Is the mental fortitude. Totally. And the mental fortitude to, to, to really slug away and punch at this thing... You gotta. There's a reason why your favorite surfer. There's a reason why Jody Smith is hasn't been world champion yet. So that I actually have that on my list that I wanted to ask you about. I look at three guys who are world title potential. Jordan, jo- Julian, Julian, Jordan, Jordan. We'll just <laughs> exactly. make them one. Julie, Julian, Jordan, Jordy, <laughs> Julian, Jordy. Right, and then I would argue Chloe Andino is one of those guys too. I would argue that he's just now coming into yeah. the beginning of that conversation. So let's I think throw him he out. was I don't think he had the maturity um in any way shape or form to to handle it for for a long time. I don't think he physically No, I don't either. had the ability. He looked like a child uh for a very long time, but in this last year, he it's it's all come together. So I'd say that I'd say that now is the first time that I would put him in that conversation, but I wouldn't have had him in the same conversation as Julian and Jordy. Agreed. So we'll throw him out. Let's go Julian and Jordy. What will be required of those guys to actually... They've got tougher competition now than they've ever had. They've got to get out of their own way. Yeah, in what way? They're both two people who are incredibly heady to a fault. To be that good, to be that fucking good at surfing and literally shoot yourself... Over and over again means that you have problems in your own head. I think that Julian Wilson, 
pound for pound, he's a fucking freak. Totally. But he's also a perfectionist to a fault. And it kills him. And it, it, you'll see it in his body language when a turn isn't like perfectly Julian-esque. Yeah. And when things go wrong, you watch his body language change. He gets in his head and he gets his own way. He's one of my favorite human beings to ride watch a surfboard. It's insane. That last edit, you're just like, what? That fucking alley-oop. You can't well, not bet on him after you watch that. Yeah, you can't. That is gnarly. And he's got his shit together now. He's married, right? That, that. But my question is, is that helpful? I think it helps it, a lot of people. I think, I think fatherhood helps more than marriage. Yeah. Um, traditionally, when guys become dads, um, something happens. Like, like some, yeah. some fucking old caveman must provide for the village thing yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that... Uh, it's going to be interesting with him, but he's got he, all Julian has to do is get out of his own way. Mm-hmm. I think Jordy has caught probably more bad breaks than Julian has, but I think the manner in which Jordy has reacted to those bad breaks, like I think the gut punches for him are something that he traditionally hasn't recovered from, especially when it's come to from from the judges. Mm-hmm. Like I think he's been handed. A lot of times, I, I, I've seen, he loses close heats and at times when I don't think he should. But he, then again, don't put yourself in that position. Yeah. And I think he he's finally healthy. He's focused. He he was also somebody I think, and I feel sorry for like when it comes to the Jordies and Julians, they were anointed early. You got to think back to like too when, much too soon. They were anointed early when they when they made the tour. And they were both coming off of insane edits. Winning a title was something that was supposed to happen. Everyone in your camp is telling you that it's supposed to happen. The entire industry is telling you that it's supposed to happen. They were not able to to carry that. And then when injuries happen and all these other things, and now you're chasing it, right? There's nothing worse than fucking chasing it. To not being in that flow, in that present state. And I think that they both had to recover from that find their place is like who am I outside of what everyone's telling me I am or I'm supposed to be and I think they've both matured a lot it, it blows my mind when you think that Jordy's like when you say 10 years has he been on tour that this long? is his 10th year on tour is it really 10th season dang that's hard to imagine yeah that's because you thought he would have won a world title by now yeah so I, I think that um it's going to be really interesting. I think they like not being the guys. Yeah. They both are in a great position now where they have the experience, they've been through some shit, and they're not the guy. Even though Jordy finished, what, second? Second. It was the most quiet runner-up finish Truly. in the history of mankind. I'm sure that plenty of people who just heard me say second are like, oh, yeah, yeah. that's right, he, he, he finished second. Yeah. But that's great for him. For him, confidence-wise, it's like, cool, you guys aren't even fucking talking about me. Mm-hmm. This is great. Mm-hmm. If you took, for me, top five surfers on the planet that wear jerseys, Mick, Kelly, Jordy, Julian, uh, John John, in no particular order. Um, Who? Um, Felipe and, and Gabby. Yeah. those are, that, That's like, for me, that's the, the elite side of the fence like some DNA shit you just everyone else you gotta work at it but these guys have a head start agreed 
who's your call? Who's your pick for the world title at the end of 2017? <sighs> Got to make a prediction. My prediction for a world title at the end of 2017. I'm going to go with McFanning. I like it. I'm going to stick with it. Man, such a good story. If that actually happens, that is the best story. You can't script this, yeah. one might say. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would never say it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go with Mick. And I hope that John John, Gabby, Kelly, Julian, Jordy are all there in the conversation. And Leo. I hope Leo's... Are you a Leo fan? I'm a fucking huge Leo fan. Yeah. Who doesn't want to time travel and just be Leo's wingman? Yeah. <laughs> Let alone, like, be Leo. Like, you just want to be his wingman in life. Yeah, I love Leo. But I've also, I'm biased. Like, I've known him since he was probably 13, 14. Yeah. And he's always been the coolest kid. And I remember as a, him as a little kid, like, just throwing himself out into big second reef pipe. Mm-hmm. You're a fucking Italian who barely, barely speaks English. But, you know, he, he, he couldn't help but make friends. He's, he's a worldly dude. He, you know, he, he's just, he's got presence. And I think he brings like a, he and that crew, they bring that, that fun energy back into yeah. it. It's not, it's serious for them, but not so serious that they're, they're not enjoying the ride. Good. I, I am a fan as well. Um, I just, the only apprehension I have is just the amount of coaching that he's had. Not not legitimate coaching, but the amount of handling that he's had with his background, where he's just, he is cultivated to be a world tour guy and be a pro surfer. And that's not as fun for me to watch as it is to watch Seabass surf, you know, or something right. like that. But, it, but his talent's undeniable. It know? is. And... I broke my back at Pipeline. No kidding. And I came back and qualified the next year. That shows a level of grit that I didn't know. You can't. Had. You can't coddle recovery. Yeah. You, there's, there's, recovery is something that is 100 percent a choice, especially from something like that. That's like your back. That's your. It's your nervous system. That's where all your decisions are made. And to be able to come back from that and be confident moving forward, that's big. Same thing with Owen. Right. You know, he's enough. I, I left him out of that top group as far as ability is concerned. But Owen, from the ability side, he's that natural, gifted ability side. He's right up there in well, that, that place in space. What, you know, traumatic brain injury is, is something that takes a very, very long time to see all the effects of. And yes, he's surfing at a very high level. But what is that intensity and the grind? How much... Is he still recovering? Those are all questions that we don't know the answer to. And you just, more than anything, you just want him to, like, enjoy his life because he easily could not have been here. I honestly was so worried about him in this last year with what was not being said, where I just felt like there was kind of a scary silence around the whole situation. And um, I love Owen. And that year that you're talking about seeing Kelly at restaurants get that wave, Mm. Owen one cloud break and he got four tens and that surfing was like the best surfing I've ever seen done in competition. Yeah. Like it was, he was owning cloud break when it was treacherous. You know, he was treating it like it was like two foot, like kitty land. Gnarly. And 
If you've ever surfed Cloud Break, it's uh, gnarly. It's Cloud Break at, at at six feet when it's your turn, and it's got a little bit of west in it, and everyone tells you to go, and you're sitting at the top of the bowl. It's real. Yeah. I mean, I've been there seventeen times, and I still just get scared shitless when I think about it. <laughs> yeah. And you will many times be like, "No, I'm good. You go." Right. Well, I'm I'm hoping for the best from Owen. Yeah, me too. I hope, especially now to come full circle, his sister like making the choice that she was going to win for him mm-hmm. and for the, the their union, their unique like Swiss Family Robinson, mm-hmm. you know, five sibling, you know, parents like that's just they're one of those stories that you can't not root for. Um, he's got a baby now. He's, too. Yeah, he's got he's he's a dad, and that that that's extra focus, like. I almost lost my life. Now I'm a father. That's some full circle shit. Totally. So we can see. I'm. I'm. Oh, I'm curious about the rookies too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any picks out of the rookies, real quick? I mean, you mentioned Leo, of course. There's also Ethan Ewing, Joan Daru, Connor O'Leary, Frederico Morais, Zeke Lau, Ian Gavea, Stu Kennedy is actually a rookie, even though he surfed all the events last year. Stu Kennedy is. That's that's the one guy I just don't want to draw. Oh, I know. It, if there's one person out of all those guys that I don't want to surf against, it's Duquette. Because he doesn't know that he's not supposed to win. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Totally. He gives zero fucks what you think about any of his aesthetics or any of it. Like, he is going... You're, you're going to make... You have to make Stu Kennedy tap out. Yeah. Like, mentally, he's just... He's got that gear and it's fun to watch. Like, yeah, he was such a good thing, especially in the first half of last year... In not caring about who you were and who your sponsors were or what your story was, like you're in my way. He had already given up on like the QS life, taken a job. It's just like given up on pro surfing, right? And got gifted the wild card into it, and like it's it's he amazing. surfed like he surfed like it. Yeah, exactly. He surfed like someone who'd been through some shit. Totally. And that's again like when we talk about the early anointing. Yeah. But you haven't been through the shit. It's hard to serve that. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. They were like, I don't think if you come from a healthy family background of like a, a, a nuclear family, both parents there, loving the whole deal, the, he, they were like, to me, that's a poison for someone getting world championship. Like you need to go. I don't disagree. And I, I had never thought of it that way. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. And then you start looking at the names and you're like, that kind of makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, I personally, out of all those dudes, I still consider Jack Freestone a rookie. Okay. <laughs> um, because he was hurt. Was he hurt? I don't remember. He was hurt for a, a big portion of I know last he year. made the final in Brazil. Yeah, but he was hurt for a portion of last okay. year, remember? Okay. So to me, he kind of gets a little bit of a pass. I love his surfing. I do too. Um, there are a lot of people who are like, eh, it's too pretty. But I like his surfing. I think if he did... Whatever he did, I hope he got strong mm-hmm. in his his below the waist, like got strong legs, did stuff to be strong, to deal with impact, etc., and um, put some muscle on. Because if him with a little bit of muscle to, to back up all that weirdness mm-hmm. would, would be cool. Um, Zeke Lau, I, I, I hope, and people will get pissed at me if I, for saying this, if there's one person that out of the whole rookie class that I worry the most about being able to stay 
the course and not get relegated, it's Zeke Lau. And I want him to make it. But I feel like he's going to get some... He's, it's going to be a quick early come to Jesus as far as really expanding his game at a base level. You know, I like him the best out of, in terms of the style of surfing that he does out of the rookie class. But I agree with you that on the QS level, I've seen more volatility from him. Even at places where he's supposed to win, Haleiwa, Sunset, he just kind of buckles it. Like he'll finish a heat with a three-point total and you're just like, what? Yeah. This is your bread and butter, dude. And you have the ability beyond any of the other competitors. So I'm not sure what that's about. Yeah, and we can't forget that like your boy had to open the, hold the door open for you to get you in. He literally Keanu. was like, Keanu had to... Yeah, that's well, right. No, I mean like as far as how he got in, how he qualified. Yeah. Um, but wasn't it yeah. Keanu had to lose and get Keanu had to lose, to but also at the same oh, time... Kanoa. Kanoa had Kanoa, Kanoa right. had to go and plow through everyone. If Kanoa double qualified, then it would allow Zeke right. the spot. Right. So that's what got him, helped his cause. Right. So there was two things that had to happen there. Otherwise, relative to his ability, like like you're talking about yeah. on paper, his surfing, no question, should have been should have been chilling right. at pipe, not stressing. Right. So he's got more to prove. Uh, to the rest of the class. That said, he's a fierce Hawaiian. He loves the responsibility that comes with and the honor of being like full blood Hawaiian on tour. Yeah. That's a big deal. Not to mention, you know, world titles there down the street from you. Yeah. Um, I think he'll I think he'll do a good job of adjusting and learning in real time, but he needs to do so early. He needs mm-hmm. to take whatever licks he gets on the front end, that can't get in his head. Mm-hmm. Because he's going to deal with it. And I think that's that's my only worry. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I like this class of rookies. I think they're it's kind of the best rookie class we've had in a while. I'm curious about Ethan Ewing. Me too. I, I, watched, I didn't start to watch his surfing until um, a few months ago. Well, but he's he's got a, a, a good base level of surfing. Similar to Jack Freestone in yeah. certain respects. Um, he won the U.S. Open this last year, and then he did really well at the Triple Crown. Yeah. So that is a counterpoint to the U.S. Open, where it's like you could have questioned his ability in big waves, but he brought it. He's not afraid. I saw him in Hawaii. Yeah. And he he was charging. I mean, who expected Kanoa to, to to figure it out as quickly as he did over the course of the year? He looked like a little kid. Yeah. In the beginning of the year, and he literally was like, "I'm going to be a man now." Made the finals at Pipe. At Pipe. Breezing, gnarly on some like I don't know what's happening here, but I'm just gonna keep letting it roll. Yeah, you you don't remember this, but you gave Kanoa and I a ride home from lowers one time from like the top lot back to like the parking lot because <laughs> I was filming with him. No way. Yeah. I mean, like five, you know five many, six years. Ago. You know how many people tell me that story though? Really? I think um, who was it? Oh, Hobgood Brothers. They have a story with me like that goes back like twenty years ago, I guess, where I pulled over and gave them a ride. There's a lot of people like who are a, like at, it all takes place at lowers. All or? takes place at lowers. Okay, all all okay. takes place with I'm going to make the left hand turn and I'm leaving to head south. This is when I still lived in Encinitas. Yeah. Um, and there's people standing on the side of the road that are looking for the ride. Yeah. And we've I've been there. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing worse than someone who you know a is a surfer. B has the room, yeah. and C is just like, uh, uh, they're just 
they make sure they don't make eye contact with you. It's like, you dick. <laughs> so that was my thing for a long time. That's fine. I still do it. I still pull yeah. over if I see the Groms. I'm like, you need a ride? And they're like, yeah. Yeah, it's a helpful ride. It was like after dark, too. The sun had already gone down. And uh, it was just like, dude, you don't want to walk that in the dark after you've been surfing all day. So yeah. the ride helps. Oh, and that makes me... See you guys. Thanks for the ride. I'm not that much of a dick. <laughs> Um, all right, I'm going to get into some closing questions. I'm curious uh, what your travel schedule looks like right now and how much of it is dedicated to surfing or is surfing just an ancillary thing at this point? Or um, No, it's uh, surfing is still a huge part of my life. I mean, I went to the Mentwise last year for two weeks and I went to Cloudbreak. And I carve out that time um, to the to the chagrin of the people who represent me and are in charge of getting me work. Right. Anytime I'm like, okay, so you know, right there in the midst of shows being auditioned for and offers, like I won't be here. Mm-hmm. And that's always how I've lived my life. I've always it's always been I put surfing and first and then snowboarding and. Because that's what's got me here. Yeah. So, and that's where my joy comes from, mm-hmm. is uh, is surfing. So, I'm going to Nicaragua. I got a, a trip planned to Nicaragua this year. I'll go to Tavi, and I'm going to try to go trifecta. I'm going to try and do another Indo trip, see how my girl feels about that. <laughs> I know if I take her to, to, to Tavi, I'll, which I have to, I can't go to Tavi without her, um, then I'll be able to get the mentalized trip out of it. But I'm Perfect. still... And I listen. There's probably a lot of people going. What is he even talking about? Like, fuck that guy. I work my ass off to to get in this place where I feel like that's that I have the options. And like I said at the, at the outset, for me, it's all about life. It's all about the quality of life. Yeah. Like all I've ever done. The reason why I even got into this whole thing was to try to figure out a way to support my habit, mm-hmm. to support the habit of this lifestyle that has given me so so much it's given me the ability and in, in how i make my living and take care of my family and how i live so um surfing is 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 still key and the star for me well then let's actually comment on that what is um providing your surf lifestyle i know you're correspondent with vice currently yeah what, what else do you got going on so i executive produce um the show on viceland called Vice World of Sports. It's a documentary sports show um, where we look at places and cultures through the lens of sports. So you don't even really have to be a sports fan. Mm-hmm. We are Season 2 is airing right now on Viceland. And hopefully we'll shoot Season 3 because if we shoot Season 3, um, one of the stories we're going to do is the uh, the Brazilian Revolution, but do it from a real core level of, of to, to really put in the context how impossibly incredible this story is of what... This place has done as a culture to now be a dominant force in surfing. Have you seen that series on Netflix about the Brazilian uh, rodeo yeah. guys? Yeah, I think it's called Fearless. Yeah, maybe, Fearless. Or? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's so funny. I was <laughs> we were I was pitching at first where I was like, it'd be cool if we did rodeo and surfing concurrently to explain sort of what the Bra- Brazilian socioeconomic political structure has been like for the last. 15 years and they're like oh well someone already did uh, rodeo 
It's really um, well done. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're like they dominate. Yeah. Like if you turn on PBR on on NBC one day, be like those names all sound Brazilian, and those guys are all speaking. Fucking Portuguese cowboys! It's it, amazing. It's the same story. Yeah, it is the Brazilian exactly the, yeah. the same story. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would like to do in season three. But if not, then I'll just go make it with someone else. Um, if we don't come back, but it's been a great fun two years working for Shane Smith there. And then the rest of the time, I am at Red Bull, um, the Red Bull Media House. I host the Signature Series, Red Bull Signature Series on NBC as well as some select events that I go to, like the Vulcan Pipe Pro, um, that I get to commentate, which is awesome. And I do three music festivals a year for them okay. as well. I do the live broadcast of uh, Lollapalooza, uh, Austin City Limits, and Bonnaroo, okay. which is awesome. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I have a band that I play in called Alakazam. Um and we're just about to put out our second album. We're actually playing. We're playing um, Bonnaroo this year. Awesome. Yeah. And I think listeners probably have heard some of that music in television and movies. Yeah, and they, mainly they, television, they, I guess. Television. Um, we we were early on. We had songs in Entourage in the right. final season of Entourage, and then um, House of Lies right. on Showtime. The big one for us was when we had the closing song of the season premiere. That was like the big sort of this song called All Is Forgiven. Um, and now uh, I think people are discovering us through Spotify because that the song really took hold digitally and got started getting on all these playlists and people's discover we, weekly. So mm-hmm. the song that we put out early last year now has almost 2 million plays wow. on Spotify. And then it took... Does that amount to like 32 cents on Spotify? No, it's actually kind of crazy. I was doing the math the other day because I was wondering, like, what do we make on Spotify? Yeah. And between that and what it's done to all of our other songs, where we're totally almost at like almost 3 million plays, which is pretty good for an... It's actually great for a band that ha- is signed and has marketing. We have nothing. It's just yeah. us. Um, it's like we made like 20 grand. Oh, really? Yeah. So okay, paid cool. for the record. Okay. Cool. Paid. We paid for this last record off of... Um, Spotify of Spotify and iTunes sales that's awesome and it's I call it it's called Alakazam which is Masakela backwards because I didn't want to make a Sal Masakela record because I figured people would be like really this this guy really yeah gonna make a fucking record and most people don't know my history musically or or any of what we talked about earlier so uh, I was like well if I call it Alakazam then they'll, if they find out later, they find out later. There is still an homage there. It is, just, 100%. Yeah. And it's actually right in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if you, you find out afterward. We actually just made a deal. Um, this is the first time I'm announcing this. Perfect. But to put out our, the, our new album, Soundproof Heart, this summer, um, we just partnered with Ruka. And Ruka is going to do an Alakazam uh, capsule collection uh, for summer. And they'll be featuring a lot of our music off of this next album um, in various edits uh, for different athletes, etc. Fantastic. All summer. So I mean, it's really cool to partner with them and to have somebody who's like, Pat Tenori was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. And we get it and we want to tell your story. I love the way that they have evolved their brand and the decisions that they've made along the way. Creatively and from a marketing standpoint and the partnerships that they've done, they're fantastic yeah it's I, I still can't believe it um we just closed that 
a couple of weeks ago. And it's fun because for me, music is just what I love doing. I never, I have no intentions to make anything of it other than I just love, you know, spreading, spreading yeah. cheer Good. with sound. So, um, it, by the way, is Red TV not the best like media house and also place for content? On it's the awesome. web, it's freaking ridiculous. I mean, I'm biased because Red Bull um, signs my checks, but I left. Lots of people don't realize. Like, I left ESPN at the. I was about to sign a five year deal with the X Games again after being there 13 years, um, but I didn't feel like I just didn't think that from a there was any care for the core anymore mm-hmm. as far as the direction of the brand, and I still I just felt like you know I'd like to. I like to get back to being at events that are athlete driven, mm-hmm. and I saw what Red Bull was doing with the media house, and I just reached out to a friend there, and I said, "Hey, what's going on with this thing? It looks like you're starting to really ramp up content and make it a place. Like you might need a person to be that yeah. to help you put that into context." I was kind of just fishing, and he was like, "Are you serious? Is you'd leave ESPN?" It's like, dude, in a heartbeat. If I got to be at a ground level and be back in events again and and really have some stuff that's about the culture first. Yeah. Absolutely. And here we are. I just just did a three year deal with that started last month. Great. Um and it's been a, the the best relationship, man. It's been it's been a lot of fun. And being able to partner with Volcom, you know, to to, to do what you said, like that was a part of everyone sitting down and being like, Okay, how do we make this Feel like a broadcast, but mm-hmm. feel like a broadcast that surfers can feel like they're a part of. Yeah. Wassel helps. Wassel is... <laughs> you can't do any of that without Wassel. Dude, he's so good. But being open to be like... Actually, Wassel's an asset Yeah, to this. Yeah, um, not a liability. Not a liability. Um, it, it's been fun. And I work... Red Bull's been incredibly supportive with everything that I do, in, including the music. So... It's nice to be at a place. It's like we get everything that you do, and oh, if you want to go and do this thing in advice that doesn't conflict with what we're doing, even more power to you. Radical. Their their stuff that they put out is consistently the best. Like what Ian Walsh's film, Distant Between Dreams, that Let's Be Frank film last yeah. year, Frank Solomon. Yeah. The Ripple Effect series. Yeah. Like all of it's rad, and it's for free. Which is crazy. It is crazy, and so. I hope that I hope that it takes off and it continues to be sustainable. Because it, again, it, that's about those kind of projects. Literally, come down to them saying, "What do you want to do?" Mm-hmm. And Ian being like, "Well, I kind of want to do this thing." That most people would be like, "That sounds like a lot of money," and it's never been done before, and the variables are so much that it would probably be impossible to shoot. Yeah, and for Red Bull. For the media, for the media house team, that's what the, the our team gets excited about. It's like, okay, how do we make this a possibility? Mm-hmm. And what kind of stories are out there that we can tell that most people don't want to take a chance on? And that's still what Rebel Media House, you know, has has been about. Um, and now with the advent of Red Bull TV, it's uh, it's been cool. I don't know how I got so lucky. Like I, you, we talked earlier, like MTV, ESPN, both at their their heights of importance, you know, with X Games and then being able to get off of that ship and then straight into like two media brands that are about breaking down doors and taking new chances and how we perceive yeah. things. I, I'm, I shouldn't, 
on, on, I, on paper, it, it, this deep into my career, I shouldn't have these kind of opportunities, but I feel lucky. Good. Well, that's a good posture to have. And I'll cycle back to what you were, the story you were telling, your origin story that you were telling earlier. I don't need to tell you this, but I feel the need to reaffirm it to listeners, which is like, dude, you just worked for free with every opportunity that you got. You paid it forward and they said, we can't pay you. You go, that's okay. I'll come do it for free. And I want to learn on the job and I'm willing to put myself out there. And that's something that I'm not sure everybody else is willing to do. And so you worked for years and years and years to get that first break, you know, and to get these breaks that you have now, it was because you paid it forward back then. And I I appreciate that. I have younger brothers, you know, and they're like, Thankfully, they don't listen to this, but <laughs> they'll, they'll be like, they start a new job and like a month later, he's like, yeah, I'm going to ask for a raise. And I'm just like, what? It's a, it's, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 dude. You don't, you show up early, you stay late, you work harder than everybody else for a year, maybe two, and then maybe you ask, you can't go into, so the people who are willing to do what you were willing to do at that time and humble yourself and take a risk, they're few and far between. So it's culturally also, it's just, it's changed. It's really changed. I think people having access to what comes from hard work and being able to see that via social media, in, in, interactions of Instagram, etc. Like everyone starts aspiring for like, oh, I want that car yeah. or that house or that quiver or those friends. And there's no one tells the hardship. No one tells anything in their social media stories about like, fuck, I don't know if I'm going to be able to like do I have a job this year or mm-hmm. I just left this real secure thing and now I'm going to take a chance here and I don't know if I'm doing, but it feels like this is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to do it. Here's another photo of me at my desk for the 14th day in a row. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like blank screen, like don't know how this book is going to come together. I have a deadline. No one, no, no one gets uh, any of that, whether it's design or what. And that's, I, I, I meet a lot of kids who, the first question that they come up to me with, and a lot of times the letters that I get, you know, via email or social media or whatever, is like, how can I do what you do? And I'll tell them, and when I tell them how much work it is, 99% of the time, they disappear. It's literally like 0.1% who are like, okay, what's my next step? Mm-hmm. Because this shit looks way more glamorous than... It is in that it's all relative. Like this, it's hard. But I love what I do so much that it doesn't feel like work. Of course, yeah. You know, and that's always kind of what it's been like. Even at its worst, when I've been, you know, completely clueless as to how things were going to move forward. I mean, there was a time when I was stupid with my money in the mid two thousands, and I had wasn't prepared for for suddenly like having money, didn't go to college, didn't have a, a, any reference for investment, etc. And I lost all my money, mm-hmm. like lost all my money, like IRS come for you, put a lien on your accounts. Oh, and by the way, you owe this and back taxes. And we're going to collect over the course of these next few years since you just got a new job and we'll take our time. Mm-hmm. And it looking like I'm having the life and I'm on TV every day and I was working at E Entertainment, but I was literally like working to pay the government off. Yeah. And I had to learn some really, really hard lessons as a result. But that's not the part that, you know, that anybody 
sees. Yeah. You know, they see that you've got access and you. It looks easy. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't change any of it. Yeah. Like, that's the shit that actually gave me the 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 real like. Okay, I'm going to keep going no matter what. Yeah. Good. The final question I have for everybody that's ever interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard that I rode was a 5.5 twin keel stringerless Christensen. What? Yes. It's downstairs. I'll show it to you. Uh, Stringerless. I've seen him make something super similar to that. I can't remember the name of it where it just has like a stringer that disappears on either ends like it's almost a wedge that yeah. goes into nothing is that this is that's stringless no string. 23 and a half inches wide is it eps foam um i think so okay yeah but it's a magic stick where'd you ride it what i i rode it at the south side of the venice pier on a minus tide pushing where we had some weird eddy in a storm where it just got super glassy and i I had a weird feeling. I was like, there might be waves. And there was this little left-hand sandbar. It was like two feet, nobody out. And I rode it by myself like two Sundays ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the best. Sweet. Yeah. That was yeah. my last my last surf because I hurt my back right after that. <laughs> so I've been out of the water for 10 days. But I'm starting, starting to finally feel like I'm going to surf again later this week. Cool. Right on, dude. Dude, Thanks for thank so you much time. so much. Yeah. Sometimes I think about things before they happen Floated around in my head for a while All of a sudden it's grown too big to handle Changed its clothes and grown a mind of its own Too loud to listen, too proud to put the paper to the pen Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Hope that you enjoyed this supersized episode. You can find everything that Sal and I discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I'll have links to Sal's information as well as his social media, all that stuff. And feel free to leave a comment for Sal. Like I said in the intro, I will make sure that he sees it and reads it. And then if you'd like to actually do me a favor, rate and review this show in iTunes. That's a great way to help other people find this show and help this show grow. We've also set up a donation platform on the website. So if you'd like to throw some change into the bucket, that goes a long way to helping this show exist. So we always appreciate that. You can either make a one-time donation or we also have a subscription option for $5 or $10 a month, which is just an automatic contribution every month. So surfsplendorpodcast.com is where you can do that. And then, of course, follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. That's a great way to see a lot of the imagery that Sal and I discuss in this episode. And uh, it's a great way to share the show with friends, too. You can just tag them in a post, and that helps with our exposure. The more downloads and listens we get, the greater our influence is, the, more, the easier it is for us to attract guests on this show. So if you could do that, we would appreciate it. All right, you've heard me talk for well over two hours today, so I'm going to leave it at that. Until next week, 
This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you just to get back into the ocean, get a couple of waves, and shred on. Controlled emotions find me drifting instead. Till we feel better without it. Go and knit some sweaters about it. Two stone statues trying hard not to laugh. Maybe there's something in the movement or the stillness of the air. Put that good stuff on ice and keep that elephant. 